Hey everybody, welcome to a very special Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you... What are you laughing at? I... Because you're laughing, you're smiling, and it's rare... You're usually in a rare state by the time we start these things, so it's unusual. No, this is my... Okay. My joie de vie, as it were. (laughs) Hey everybody, welcome to a very special Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and Ed... Oh, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, why don't you tell everybody out there in TV land why this is such a special episode? Um, well, for two reasons, and they're kind of related. The first that I assume you're referring to is that I'm sitting in your house and we're doing this sort of in person. We is- are recording this episode from my office, my studio office, if you will. You can see I have these sound panels, which makes me feel like it's a studio. My studio office, if you will... Uh, here in beautiful Denver, Colorado, together because you are here here in Colorado for a couple of meetings. So that's I think that makes it a spe- very special episode, don't you? I mean, we're it, it's a know. little uncomfortable. Oh, really? How so? Well, when you were doing your intro, we had to do a couple of takes because you kept saying, "Why are you laughing?" And the reason was because you were making very intense eye contact, and it was <laughs> making me a little nervous. <laughs> Is that so? Yeah, just a little bit. Okay. Well, just look away, you know, as you yeah. usually do when, uh, when someone, you, you know, when, when uh, as you usually do when someone of confidence and <laughs> poise and strength makes eye contact, you just look away, you know, it'll be okay. I'll just stare at the ground and shuffle <laughs> right. my feet. And... Exactly. Well, we are indeed, this is indeed the Pillar Podcast, and we are indeed recording kind of in studio, as it were, um, here in Denver, Colorado. And uh, the reason we're here together is because we have had a couple of meetings for a couple of days this week um, to work on, what, pillar stuff? Pillar stuff. Yeah. To possible things we can do to make the service better. Possible things that we can do to make the pillar project better. And um, and I, I am excited about them. I, I don't know that we're ready to sort of, you know, throw them out there into the into the unknown, as it were. But um, but I am excited about them. And I'm as we do this podcast, I'm, I'm grateful, of course, as I always am, for our subscribers because they're the lifeblood of the projects that we are doing. Yes. There is a certain amount of... I I feel like this is deja vu. All over again. Yeah, because beginning year two, we're now talking about various projects that we could do to sort of improve our offering and things. And we're sort of right back where we were this time last year. Well, I wonder if we're going to make Make this this work. I wonder if people are going to pay for this. I wonder if this will happen. Um, but that's good. I suppose a certain amount of anxiety is, yeah, and is I, part of the game. And also, you know, it's good to be reminded that this is all providence. I was going to say, I think the Lord and his providence has brought us thus far. And um, and yeah, we're working on some things that I think will make the pillar um, a better news project and add some depth and... Um, improve the user experience. Improve the user experience and then add some different perspectives and stuff as well. So anyway, all of that is great. But, you know, that means that we're recording the show on Wednesday night. You, you know, usually we record during the workday, but we've had a busy day today, so we're recording the show on Wednesday night uh, here, and uh, we've had a good couple of days together, I would say, and then you're heading home tomorrow. We have a meeting tomorrow morning, and then you're heading out. Yes, I've I've enjoyed it. I Yeah, these trips are always kind of a blur whenever I make them. We end up starting work early and finishing, finishing, late. Yeah. finishing late, and I mean, that's kind of a necessity. I could, I could easily come out here for a week or more and we would fill the time happily yeah. but you know i i have a wife and child who or at least fill it yeah i yeah. have a wife and child at home that i need to get back to i'm i'm sure they're coping without me but you know i do, i don't want them to i don't want them to cope well without me i would yeah. like them to you know be in a state of desperate 
anxiety for me to return. Plus, you don't want to miss... Uh, we're not going to talk about this now. We're going to talk about this later. But you obviously do not want to miss the Super Bowl at home. Yeah. That's keeping me up nights. For sure. <laughs> we will talk about that later. What I want to start out talking about today, Ed, is... I don't want to banter. I don't want to talk about teeth. By the way, uh, to everyone who... <laughs> Listen to last week's show in which we talked about teeth for a great deal of time. Thank you for uh, writing into us and sending us messages and information and diagrams and um, all the other ways in know. which you helped JD understand that no, I understood human wrong. biology more, better than him. You were wrong. I mean, I think the consensus of the dentist who we heard from is that you didn't understand shit about teeth. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I, I read them as an affirmation of my basic theory. <laughs> In that, Ed, you're right. Um, humans and animals grow teeth. Now, as to the other details, you're, yes, but I think they did affirm that humans and animals grow teeth. And grow them in different ways. And grow them in different ways, yeah. And but, you didn't even have that much. So we're but, talking about teeth again. That's not what we're here for. I was about to talk about teeth more. Because animals, it turns out... No! We're not doing this. This is not turning into a Catholic dentistry podcast. We are not doing it. Okay. Especially right now because this is – and I don't know if you know this because you don't tend to pay attention to this kind of stuff. But this is something in the church called National Marriage Week. Um, and it is a week in which – I don't know. The church – Does Jane Austen ask double weddings? Observes marriage in one form or another. The church observes marriage or recognizes that there's marriage or something. It, it, it's effectively – these kind of weeks I, – I, I'm just going to say it. These kind of weeks where it's like this week or that kind of week, you know, it's like marriage week or – Catholic Schools Week or Vocation Week. I understand that it's. It feels a bit like the me- like the message calendaring of a, of a of a politician. First of all, so it kind of like you know like if you run the message calendar for a politician, then you might say, okay, this is Transportation Week, and all week all of our speeches are going to be about transportation because we got the big transportation bill coming up, or this is Infrastructure Week, or this is Fake News Week, or whatever it is that you whatever kind of week you you want to have. Um, and it feels a bit like that because I like it more when the church is rooted in the liturgical calendar than. Yes. On the other hand, National Marriage Week, you know, <laughs> is going to culminate uh, I have what? A, well, I was going to say, I have a question, and perhaps this is what you were building towards, is does National Marriage, is it time to coincide with Valentine's Day? In as much as I know, yes, because National Marriage Week oh. ends on the 14th of February. So I think I think it's time for that, and I think the idea probably is that whoever, the, whoever makes National, whoever's idea National Marriage Week is, and frankly, I, I don't know, and I didn't look it up, and I'm not going to, but whoever's idea National Marriage Week is, I think that it's an effort to seem culturally relevant by hooking something Catholic into uh, something in widespread culture, i.e. Valentine's Day, which, of course, is Catholic in, in its origins, although in no way kind of correlated, related to the thing of the thing today. I would like it better if we were observing a week in memory of martyrs who died violent deaths culculminating in Valentine's Day. That would be a better countercultural Yeah, National Martyrs Week. National and Martyrs actually, Week would be cool. since marriage is a form of martyrdom, you could fold marriage into National Martyrs Week. I suppose you could. There is a spiritual truth that you are called to mount the cross and die for your spouse in marriage. Yes. And marriage also, too. So marriage is martyrdom in that way. But, of course, the word martyr means witness. Yes. And uh, in our contemporary society, I would say that a person who is um, faithfully and generously and sincerely and seriously living the vocation of marriage is a certain way martyr in the sense of a witness to the transcendent reality of the gospel. Christian marriage is a, is a countercultural sign. It always has been. That is certainly true. And marriage is a kind of, is a very powerful kind of witness. I think that's fair to say. Um, 
I wonder sometimes if the problem with the Christian witness of marriage now is it's almost hard to model uh, silently unless you have, for example, a large Catholic yeah, like family. Yeah, like a, a, a big... A, a, unless you're a transit van family. A tra- right, transit van is what I was looking for. Unless you're a transit van family, which thanks be to God for transit van families. But if you're not a transit van family, then perhaps... I mean, you, I, I, make, I try and do my own best thing um, to, to make it clear that I adhere to the Christian philosophy of marriage and so i always introduce my wife as my first wife to make it clear that i've stayed with her and you know i I like to think that this is and also in a certain way to witness to the fact that marriage you know is a lifelong a partnership for the whole of life a a lifelong covenant but exceeds no longer than that exactly Uh, and you know i sometimes it raises eyebrows and i'm sure that i've been introduced to people who are on their fourth or fifth spouse who feel a little you know um a question is raised sure. for them. I, I can see it in their eyes that when I say this is my first wife, uh, they, you know, it, it, it plants a question, which is what all Christian witness should do. Yeah, fair. Is it yeah, fundamentally fair, should fair. provoke fair. a conversation. It should plant in front of the person who is encountering the Christian witness um, a, a, a sort of moment of startledness. Yes. Precisely. And I like to think this is one way we can do that. Well, that is, how does, um, how does Mrs. Condon feel about being introduced as your first wife? I think she has mixed feelings about it. Oh, you don't say. But, I mean, then again, you know, she 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 does embrace her vocation to marriage, specifically marriage to me, as a kind of martyrdom. As well she thought. Yes, yes and I, I think she bears it in that spirit. Okay. Well, here's what I wanted to talk about. Um, first of all, pray, pray, pray for Mrs. Condon, as you just heard. <laughs> Um, that is something that, I mean, offer things up, and if you have a family rosary, if you don't have a family rosary, maybe you start, the you call it the Mrs. Condon Hour, and, um, but just pray, pray, pray for Mrs. Condon, because An hour-long rosary? How long does it take you to say the rosary? Well, you got, uh, you got multiple sets of mysteries, so... Oh, you do the whole thing? Well, I'm saying if it's the Mrs. Condon Hour, maybe... Right, okay, fine. Yeah, no, uh, not in an ordinary daily family rosary. I was gonna say, I'm but, at a tight nine minutes if I'm alone in yeah, the car. Well, right? Yeah, but with a family rosary, it's... More like 14, no, no, with family rosaries, more like 18 to 20, 25. Mm. Yeah. Let me tell you something uh, that happened to me once, though, that uh, seems apropos to this moment. Uh, a number of years ago, my wife and I were at a friend's house, and it was before we had children. We were at a friend's house for sort of like a game night. There were a few couples, and it was for games night. We were going to play games. You know, we are going to... I've heard that couples sometimes do this. It always sounds fun. It is. It is fun. Couples do this. They play games. And so there were hors d'oeuvres and um and uh cocktails of various kinds and you know we were sounds very civilized yeah it was wonderful um is this the sort of thing you do out here in denver we used to do that sort of thing all the time and i suppose we still do but just less often because you know the chitlins as it were oh i see this is a young couples games night all the couples were our contemporaries um, but you were but young we were young yeah yes. uh, yeah okay we could do the same thing with the same couples now except let me tell you the story um we, so everyone was there and we're kind of making small talk and we hadn't broken open a game yet. And I was kind of hoping we were going to play cards. And I think other people were hoping we were going to play, I don't know, you know, a game that I don't care for, categories or something. Um, and, uh, and before we got to the game, one guy, we were talking kind of, and these are all people who practice the faith. And one guy said, well, hey, what would you guys think if, uh, it was a Friday, you know, and he said, what would you guys think if we prayed a chaplet of divine mercy before we started? And. You know, if someone says that you're what are you gonna say, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah it's <laughs> yes, wonderful, great. Yes. It would be it would be considered rude to point out, well, I've had three martinis and I'm not necessarily in the pray and frame of mind. Right, exactly. Uh, so everyone says yes, we sit down, we take our rosaries out of our pockets or purses, or we use our fingers if we need to, and you know, I think to myself, Okay, well we're gonna say a chaplet and then we're gonna play the game. So okay, fine, you know, let's do it. I I, I, I put my drink down right here. 
Well, Ed, we begin. Eternal Father, I off and so the the singing. Right. And I thought, okay, well, we're going to sing the, you yeah. know, first thing, and then on the on the Hail Mary beats, we're going to yeah, <laughs> no, for the sake of his. Oh. So it was. A, it ended up being, you know, as a chanted uh, chaplet is. It ended up being thirty five to forty, which uh, again was very nice and very prayerful. I'm not trying to denigrate yeah, that. But in by any the way, time you were done, the drinks quite, were warm. the drinks were. It's quite a thing to be surprised by. If you've ever, if you've never been surprised by a sung chaplet. You um, was you are person, not living. Was this person the host of the evening? No, not the host. Actually, well, not then the I host. think that's an <laughs> act of staggering rudeness. <laughs> it is a kind of. I mean, it, it, I don't think it was his intention to sort of weaponize the chaplet by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I don't think it was a weaponization, but, but it's an imposition. It's rather like <laughs> if you invite someone over to dinner and they say, "Oh, while I'm here, would you like to see my wedding photos?" It's right. like, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? But sure. You, yeah, you but don't I mean, really you know, get to set those terms. On the table. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, look, I'm always glad to pray a chaplet. Always. But um, being uh, being surprised by a sung chaplet is an experience that stays with you. I bet. Yeah. So anyway. This is why I don't go out. No, it isn't. That's not why you don't go out. Okay, I don't go out because I don't have friends. But the reason I well, don't have friends is because they probably will try and make me sing. And I don't <laughs> approve of that. And once it ha- once it's happening, all you can let it do is happen. And you have to offer it up and you have to say, okay, well, I'm get- yes, I mean, you should offer it up. And I certainly are- hope I offered it up. It was a long time ago. I hope I offered it up. But clearly, I have not forgotten it. No. Yeah. That's what happens with the surprise sung chaplet. Um, now, all the pious uh, listeners of our show, we got a very nice note this week uh, from a bishop who listens to our show, and and we were uh, really we're honored and edified that any of you listen to our show. But we were especially honored and edified that a bishop listens to our show, and he offered us some. This very, is a new one. I mean, a there new, are a bishop few... we didn't know listened to the show. Yeah. yeah, there are a few, but we didn't know this bishop listened to the show, and he offered us some very nice uh, feedback and also some challenges for the ways that the show could be better and. The, suggestions for the pillar and it was a very and we emailed back and forth it was a very good exchange but um now that i told the story about this getting surprised by the sung rosary i feel like the uh the bishop may be deeply and sorely disappointed in me he might or maybe he's going to be the sort of bishop who somewhere down the line is going to invite you over for dinner <laughs> and then surprise you with a sung chaplet or maybe he's been actually i think if you're a bishop <laughs> You've probably been in that situation. You know what yeah. I mean? The family's like, come over for dinner. You come over for dinner. And then they want you to know that they're very religious. And so they're like, well, how about a rosary first? And they're like, oh, well, we play, pray all 20 mysteries. And you're like, oh, I did not know that that was 15. Gonna... <laughs> Are you a rosary trad? You don't accept the validity of the luminous mysteries? I, I, well, I don't accept the premise that there are invalid or valid Mysteries and yet, at the same time, when I said twenty mysteries, you immediately rejected. I the look. I am a fan of the sainted Pope John Paul II. I am in favor of him. I think he was. He doesn't a, need your favor or fan. He's no, a he does not. Saint. He is was a, the Bishop of Rome. He is alive in heaven amongst the communion of saints and the choirs of angels. And good luck and fair play to him. I do think, though, that it is an act of. Some self-confidence to say the rosary as Our Lady gave it to us could do with an improvement. Well, okay, but I... You don't get that often. But Not I, often does Our Lady appear and say, here, I have this thing for you, and then say, I think she really missed 25% of what I we could do I think that is this. a way of talking about the history of the rosary. Uh, and yet, at the same time, I think that even very faithful historians would be able to talk about the way in which the rosary as a devotion has developed over time. Sure. Already. And I'm being slightly tongue-in-cheek. Yes, I know. Let me be clear. I don't want to get angry. You know, saying, <laughs> I cannot believe you are saying 
If we get angry emails for thus far, we're going to get angry emails that I'm that I. We've received a lot of angry emails this week. Actually, we really so have, but we got a very nice email from a bishop. And bishop, if you're still listening, I'm sure you've been there with regard to the sung chaplet or what have you. Um, here's what I want to talk about. This week is something called National Marriage Week. I don't know if you know that, Ed, but I told you about 10 minutes ago. Um, I wasn't listening. Okay. This week is something called National Marriage Week, and um, and that's good because I want to talk about marriage. And uh, and the reason is because I went to a wedding this weekend, and it was – I want to be clear because I don't want to uh, tick off an entire presbyterate, of, you know, an entire diocesan presbyterate again. Um, it was a very, very nice wedding, and uh, uh, the, the young priest who received the vows and offered the mass – I talked to him for a little while. Promises. Yeah, received the promises, received the consent, actually, it's best to say. The, the young priest who received the consent on behalf of the church, dynamic young guy, clearly faithful young guy. I really enjoyed talking to him, and I, and I, and I and he celebrated a beautiful Mass, and I'm not going to say who it was, because I uh, because what I want to say, I, I could say about any number of things, or any number of um, uh, homilies that I've heard about marriage. Um, so this guy, I'm not implicating him in any way. I'm sure a very, very good guy, and Father, if you're a subscriber, thank you. Um, the homily was about a motif that I hear more and more often used to sort of talk catechetically or pastorally about marriage, especially to young people. And it's a motif that I think is extremely well-intentioned, but I'm not sold on it as a way of talking about marriage. Say more things. So I want to talk through that with you, if that's all right. Yes, I'm saying, please carry on. Okay. So the gist of it was, and again, I think this is a motif that is just becoming more and more common in the way that we talk about marriage. But um, but again, I just want to work through it. Because the gist of it was, the homily was, and I've heard it in uh, lots of talks about marriage and seen in marriage prep materials. In marriage, it is your job to get your spouse to heaven. Your job in marriage is to get your spouse to heaven. I'm sure you've heard that. I have heard that. And I appreciate where it's coming from, which is, I think that it is coming from a place that says, because mar- Christian marriage is a countersign to the world and because... The world's idea of marriage is so often about sort of personal fulfillment and um, this illusory notion called happiness that we should emphasize that there is an, not an end of marriage and that the end is transcendent. And the, all, of, all of the baptized are called to holiness. And so, you know, to call to become saints, each of us is called to become a saint. And so in marriage, we are called to become saints too. And marriage exists for the good of the spouse. So the good of the ultimate good of the spouse is indeed her sanctification or his sanctification. And so I, I think it's coming from all those places, and I think it's good. But I think it might be a little bit unreflected because entering into marriage on the day of contracting marriage, um, the, the future is 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 always is always an ever unknown and always an ever a mystery and entirely uncertain, not entirely unpredictable, but mostly unpredictable. Right? We cannot know what our marriages will look like. Mm-hmm. We can know what the church says marriage is. Marriage is a partnership for the whole of life, a, a contract with a, a covenant, the marital, the matrimonial covenant, which involves the exchange of rights and duties and indeed in a sort of exchange an interpersonal exchange of persons which is for the procreation and education of children and the good of the spouses marriage is for marriage is effectively um a lifelong uh, sexual partnership between a man and a woman um which is for the procreation and education of children and the good of the spouses the good of the spouses and that's what yeah. we should be working for and those are the ends of marriages and those are the thousands of marriages but part of the good of the spouses it seems to me means when you have contracted marriage and therefore become committed and perhaps sort of sacramentally, if you're in a sacramental marriage, sacramentally united to this other person, the thing itself, marriage, is for your good and can be for your good, regardless of what happens with the other spouse. If the other spouse is holy and calls you to holiness, 
thanks be to God. If the other spouse is apostatizes and is a lout, there is a way in which that can be um, that cross can be a means of your sanctification as well. That in all things, sort of marriage is a death to self, a willing of the good of the other, a sacrifice for the good of the other, and a hope for the other person's salvation. And those things sanctify you. But I worry that talking about this as your job is to get your spouse to heaven creates in persons, has the potential at least to create in persons a certain kind of Pelagian codependence where it's like, I have to make you into this thing. And if you don't become this thing, I've somehow failed. When you have your person with agency, not you, you're not my spouse, but you, the spouse is a person with agency whose choices with regard to divine intimacy are beyond your control. Do you think I'm being too pedantic about this? I don't think you're being pedantic. I think everything you're saying is true. I think as with so much um, that we have built around the celebration of marriage and the act of contracting marriage, there, all of it is good and all of it is, comes from a, a place of good intention and all other things being well and fine. There's no harm and everyone understands what we're saying and, you know, poetic License can be extended to phrases like "it's your job to get your spouse to heaven" and things like that. Do you think everyone understands what we're saying? No, but that's where I'm going next. Is um, I do think, however, that there's always a risk that marriage, and particularly when people are preparing for marriage, I mean, it is a time, hopefully, of intense affection, intense human love, um, and a certain amount of perhaps irrational optimism, colored by. An intensity of erotic desire that can um, impede sort of clarity of judgment. Well, and even if not judgment, at least expectation. Yeah, at least expectation. Thank you. That's right. Um, So there's, yeah, I don't want to say clarity of judgment because now you're building an annulment case. And I don't don't want to do that. And I'm not clarity of expectation. Clarity of expectation. Um, So there's all of that. And I think in the, we often speak in the church, and I think rightly so, about the need to form couples in preparation for marriage in a way that um, strips away the sort of candy floss, Disney, secular, over-romanticized self-actualization, intoxication of romantic love aspect of marriage, which is primarily what the church understands marriage to be, which is it's a big party to celebrate the fact that you're all gaga for each other. (laughs) And that's delightful, but it's not making a permanent indissoluble partnership. No, that's not what the church understands it to be. Exactly. Okay. I thought you said that's primarily what the church understands it to be. If that's what I said, then I said it exactly the other. That's what the world. Oh, yeah. I think that's what the world understands. Mm -hmm. And so the church is right to work to strip that away. I worry sometimes, this is not a universal concern, but I do see it popping up in some corners of Catholic culture in in this country and in others, um, where the pendulum sort of swings away from the sort of secular self-actualization, uh, big party, romantic love thing, towards a heavy emphasis on spirituality and religiosity in the preparation for marriage. And that also is good, um, but it can go to the extent that it also begins to cloud reasonable expectations of what marriage is. And let me say what I mean by that. Please do. I have encountered good very observant, devotedly in love, Catholic couples preparing for marriage in different times in my life. Sometimes I've helped form them for marriage as a marriage catechist and things. And 
you see in them an attitude of, well, we met in a, you know, in a Catholic context, you know, in a rosary group or, you know. At a, at a sung chaplet. A sung chaplet, perhaps, or. So we both have impeccable patience. On a World Youth Day mm-hmm, yeah, or yeah. something like that. We go to Mass every day. Yeah, yeah. And we always have separately before we were dating yeah. or whatever. You know, we say the rosary every day. We have an intense um, common religious life already. Yeah. And that. There's an expectation that marriage will be like that. that right. We will, you know, and, and again, that's good. Having a shared intense practice of the faith is a very, very solid foundation on which to begin marriage. Yeah, and an important element of a sanctifying marriage. Right. Well, an important element of a marriage which is easily sanctifying. Right. But in the same way that you can romanticize human love in the sort of Disney secular version of marriage, you can, there's a danger of romanticizing the spirituality of marriage as well. Right. That you think, well, you know, we won't need to pay electricity bills because the fire of the Holy Spirit's going to light our family home because right. so intense is our devotion and, yeah. you know, all of this sort of stuff. And there becomes the sort of um, a kind of Catholic romanticism of marriage from a spiritual perspective. And I think if you're if if that is your experience, then hearing something like it's your job to get the other one to heaven can plant itself in your mind and then sort of flower at an inconvenient moment of crisis, which will surely come in every marriage. Every marriage does that you're going, you you know, sooner or later. And by sooner or later, I mean either by first light on the first day of your marriage, or certainly by evening of that day, you will discover in some way, major or minor, that your spouse is your cross, that you you are called to die for them. That's what it is to love your neighbor as yourself or to love your spouse as Christ loved the church, which is to offer your life for yourself over her. Right. And so I think people do need to go into marriage with the understanding and expectation that there is personal sacrifice involved. And that yeah. personal sacrifice is not always sort of ad extra right. to the marriage, but it's more often than not within the marriage. Right, exactly. And yeah. if you encounter these moments of tension or difficulty or conflict, or God forbid, one of the spouses has a profound crisis, personal, moral, right. or spiritual, or all three, and you have... um a poorly developed spiritual understanding of marriage that leads you to believe that you are somehow responsible for their own bad actions and intentions that can occasion a spiritual crisis in you. Yeah. And that is, that is not good because it will also mean that you're ill-equipped to understand the true way of approaching this, which is that there is, there is redemptive suffering in this for you. And there is a sense in which the suffering that your misbehaving spouse, um, can be offered up by you for their sanctification and here with the necessary asterisks of this is not in any way. Yeah, thank you for making this asterisk. No one should tolerate abuse. No one should no ever one should tolerate, tolerate abuse, abuse of themselves or their children or the. Yeah. Yes, we're, the, we're not saying that. But no one is saying that. I'm the, talking about the ordinary abuse, quotidian ways in which. Yeah, or even actually, even not just the, or even just not sort of the ordinary sort of everyone has a disagreement in marriage, but the profound difficulties that any particular marriage might come across over time, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. So the unique particularities of the cross that might exist for any, within any particular marriage because a person undergoes some sort of a crisis or has some sort of a um, you know, long-term, a sort of chronic condition of mind, body, or spirit, or the procreative aspect of marriage in one way or another doesn't look like one sort of anticipates that it will look you like... You are not a transit van family, for example. You are not a transit van family, or you find that you are much more of a transient family than you expected and you thought that you would be sort of you thought that you knew what that would look like and then you've got more kids than you've got money for and it seems that every time you sort of bat your eyelashes at one another you're pregnant again and you know i mean that can be across too although it has not been sort of the path of either of our families 
Um, maybe I don't bat my eyelashes right. I don't. I don't know. I'm but blinking very intensely at me right now. It's making me uncomfortable <laughs> again. So, um, but I'm glad that you say that because you know um, I, I have some more things to say about this. But I, uh, you know, Kate and I um, met when we were students at Steubenville, and you know, we got married like. Our first semester, after our first semester of grad school at CUA, but we had, you know, just finished at Zoomville. And so... And which one of you was the party person and which one of you was the hobbit, for clarification? <laughs> and so, um, and I, I suspect it's not this way anymore, although I don't know, but we got married in her, you know, the parish in which she grew up. And um, effectively, when it came time for the marriage prep, the pastor of the parish said to us, uh, well, you guys went to Zoomville, so I trust you know all this. Why don't we just talk about the liturgy? And, of course, we went to Zoomville, so we had many opinions about the liturgy for god's sake but um you know we um it, sure we had taken a course called christian marriage and we had each read cast a Kenubi and um pretended to have read all of love and responsibility while only having read some of it and you know these kinds of things but um you did do the christopher west cliff notes version i went I, we'll leave christopher west aside for a moment um, <laughs> okay uh, we'll leave Christopher West aside for one moment, and then we'll come back to it. Um, oh, we don't have to. I no, mean. I actually, I want to. I, okay. I, I want to, for a reason. Um, but, um, you know, in as much as there are four pillars of formation for um, for orders, uh, intellectual, spiritual, human, and uh, pastoral, um, you know, there are pillars of formation for marriage, too, right? Which begin, which not, can't just happen at marriage prep at the parish, you know. Marriage prep, the most important kind of marriage prep happens in the home, you know, in the childhood at home, in the family home, those kinds of things. Um, but, um, you know, there's a way in which I think even w- my experience in that moment was, um, oh, by virtue of the fact that they have had a certain kind of intellectual preparation for marriage or a certain kind of spiritual preparation, we're fine. We can sort of fast forward past the human formation and those kinds of things. And yeah, I don't know that a kind of like weekend at engaged encounter would have sufficiently prepared uh, no i'm not sure that it would have sort of like you know given us a whole hell of a lot more than that conversation about the liturgy but um but the notion of um marriage preparation that is that is uh, human as much as spiritual i think is important i would agree with that i would also just um going back to your original point about you know an ordered understanding of what the good of the spouses is and sort of you know going back to this sort of stock phrase of your job is to get your spouse to heaven the surest way... I mean, first of all, the person whose salvation you should be primarily concerned with is always your own. And that's not... That's not selfishness. It's not that's, wrong, right? It's that's not wrong. It's not selfish. Right. It's what Christ says. Right. This is what it means when you said, you know, take the splinter or take the plank out of your own and eye. And also, to, yeah, right. And to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The second thing is dependent upon the first. So indeed. you can only be a spouse who is a helpmate to your partner in as much as you are a disciple of the Lord. Indeed. And, and again, if you really are concerned about the faith of your spouse i i would submit the important the first thing to do is not to go to your parish priest and say i'm really concerned that i you see i almost just said as sort of the first name that popped into my head but that immediately we will have a listener name that and they was like <laughs> what are you saying why are you saying that i'm like <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i don't want to so um kirsten lavenstutter i'm re- immediately concerned that my wife kirsten lavenstutter Right. right. Um, so anyway, I'm concerned that my, my wife no longer goes to daily mass because she says she's too busy. Or I'm yeah, concerned yeah, yeah. that my wife doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to pray the way that I like okay, to pray. Okay, that's a human being with agency. Well, there's yeah. that. But also, if you are sincerely concerned about the spiritual life of your spouse, the single best thing you can do to improve their spiritual life is to convert yourself. Right, right. exactly. And to model sanctity. 
And and your life as a spouse may end up, your Christian life as a spouse, you may end up being, you know, an unrequited Saint Monica. Like we like Saint Monica, and Saint Monica um, got the um, consolation of the conversion of her son. I don't know enough about Saint Monica to know if her husband, if she prayed for her husband and he converted or didn't. Convert. I, I actually don't know anything about Saint Monica, so maybe this was a bad example to pick, but I picked it anyway. Um, in the story of Saint Monica and Saint Augustine. You know, long did she pray for the conversion of her son, and then it happened. Um, but um, one might equally sort of um, pray for the conversion of a spouse efficaciously for their own salvation and the salvation of their spouse, and still find that it, that conversion does not happen in their life or whatever. You know? Yes. Yeah. Well, and I, so that is the mystery of. The well, Christian and we also life. you. I mean, you cannot. In the same way that you cannot impose on the free will of this of your spouse in their relationship with God, all you can do is love them and pray for them, and as I said, try and model sanctity as best you can for yourself. Um, you also can't try and box God into a corner and say, "God, the conversion of my spouse looks like this." Yeah. So you know, can you jog them along a little bit? Yeah. Because frankly, I if she's not or he's not at my side at six thirty mass every morning, then as far as I'm concerned, they're on the the broad and well paved road to hell. Right. And yeah, that is definitely a risk. Yeah. Is that what you wanted to talk about? It me? is what I want to talk about, but there's one more element that I want to talk about too, because I think a lot of our a decent portion of our listeners are people who do marriage prep, and maybe they're saying like, okay, that's not realistic. I find that talking about it's your job to get people to heaven is an is an easy and helpful way to help people understand that marriage has a telos and. You know that they can't just quit when the going gets rough and those kinds of things. So, like, well, there's that, and I, I take, I, I understand that, which is why, in whenever I participate in marriage preparation catechesis, I'm always keen to underscore the legal aspect of marriage <laughs> because nothing strips away romanticism, be it secular, romantic, or spiritual, like talking about a good old fashioned contract, good old, an, ex- an right. exchange of rights. Marriage is not, it, it is not, a, it is not a degradation of marriage to say that it's a contract. No, it's a factual statement, and, and it's a, and 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 it's amazing. The Lord... and, and I know already there will be a, there will be at least one priest on Twitter who will listen to this podcast and start tweeting at me within twenty four hours of us posting, saying marriage is not a contract; it's a covenant. A covenant is a kind of contract. And I would like to say this right now: it is marriage is both spiritual covenant. And yes. a legal contract. Right. And, and it was a legal contract first. And what's amazing actually about marriage and the way in which it's incarnational is that the sacrament of marriage is the elevation of the natural relationship of marriage, the human relationship of marriage, which has been for as long as people, as long as civilizations have been making laws in one way or another, legally sort of recognized and regulated. And so marriage is unique among the sacraments because it is not. Now you could say, well, we eat naturally, and the Lord sort of elevated the Eucharist, and but um, but the Lord sort of took this thing, which was, you know was, gave us a new thing in the Eucharist. Um, the Lord gives us a new thing in baptism. I suppose you could say we wash, but come on, don't be. Give, let me make my point here. Um, the Lord um, gives us a new thing in baptism. The Lord gives us a new thing in the Eucharist. The Lord gives us a new thing in the sacrament of penance. Marriage is the elevation of an existing reality. Um, the sacrament of marriage is the elevation of an existing reality whose ends and essential goods and properties don't change by virtue of the fact that it's a sacrament. If I may offer what I think is a succinct summing up of what you're trying to say is marriage is the sacrament of the natural, whereas all the other sacraments are supernatural. Right, precisely. And um, and, and elevated into having a, a, a supernatural and transcendent um, end um, or meaning by virtue of the baptism of the parties. Um, and all of that is not... Again, sort of uh, 
being kind of legal just to be legal, it tells us a great deal about what marriage is. Because one of the things we've been saying here is marriage is this visceral human reality for which sort of spiritual preparation is not sufficient um, or a spiritual sort of outlook is not sufficient. And that's true by the very nature of the thing itself. Yes. This, we're talking about a relationship which is set apart from other relationships by the virtue of the fact that it is essentially a sexual relationship. There's no way to talk about that without saying this is a visceral thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, right. it is, It is as the church defines it, a partnership of the whole of human life. It yeah. is a human relationship. One can have uh, other kinds of lifelong partnerships, right? Yes. Religious profession. Um, one can have other... A substack. A substack partnership. <laughs> Is this a partnership? It feels a great deal. Is ours a partnership of the whole of life? It does feel like I'm... Whose house am I at right now? It does feel an awful lot like a partnership of the whole of my human life, I tell you. We were telling uh, Davey... Maybe I talk about this every time you come to town, but we were telling Davey, you know, on... Ed got here on Tuesday, and we were telling Davey on Monday that Ed was coming to town, and I was kind of trying to remind him who he was, and I said, you know, Dad's uh, partner, Ed, is coming, and, uh, you know, Kate was like, no, 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 don't don't call me partner. Davey could... Because Davey's going to say at school, my dad's partner is at our house now, you know, and what are they going to think? And so I was like, oh, yeah, dad's, you know, friend and friend. His special so, friend. Right, exactly. And dad's His special friend, friend who comes and sleeps over sometimes. And they're up in dad's office. I don't know. You know, so that's not really better either. <laughs> so I think we had to say very concretely, like, dad's business and journalism partner, Mr. Condon, will be coming. <laughs> Um, mom is dad's lifelong partner. Partner. This is his this is colleague, a, right? Exactly. Well, Kate wanted to say colleague, but I, I, it seemed insufficient to me because a colleague is a, a fraternal, you know, is a friendly association in a workplace, whereas we are the the janitors of this workplace. Yes. <laughs> yes. So. Yes. So you wanted to get away from pretending that our business partnership is a marriage, and you've ended by saying we have children. Yeah. Right. The point is this. Um, there are a lot of people who are in pastoral ministry because there are clerics who listen to our show or they work in a parish or something like that. And I think they would say, yeah, but we, you, this is effective shorthand. And I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to sort of uh, denigrate the use of it, uh, although I would suggest that there are ways to talk about marriage and the sanctifying aspect of marriage that can better sort of prepare one for the, uh, the mystery of the cross in the context of marriage, the unexpected... Uh, realities of marriage and it can help to avoid the possibility maybe just for the scrupulous I don't know but the possibility of sort of engendering a kind of spiritual codependency which could ultimately be unhealthy even if it's not uh, unhealthy in how it's lived most of the time it's a it, po- it poses a risk it plants a risk at the heart of the spiritual life of the marriage and yeah. I think that's worth bearing in mind yes yeah okay well good show uh <laughs> Um, what uh, I would like to talk about now is something that a lot of people have been talking about, um, and it's kind of old news, but it seems to have had another uh, had a new uh, vitality, uh, as it were, because um, Archbishop Zanketa. No, I didn't want to talk about Archbishop Zanketa. We can talk sorry, about Bishop it. Zanketa. I should say I, Bishop I Zanketa. I didn't want to talk about Bishop Zanketa. We can if you uh, want. Well, no, but, but I, well, I'm trying to guess. I, I never know what we're going to talk about. You said old news that's you know sort of had a new life, and he's back in the news this week. So. Yeah, it's new. I didn't say he's back in the news. I said I'd like to talk about a thing that's back in the news. Well, uh, you shouldn't depersonalize him, JD. He's a bishop <laughs> of Mother Church. <laughs> I, talking about Zanketa. I wanted to talk about something that was in the news in 2020, but it was 2020, for God's sake. So, Oh, I know what you were talking yeah. about now. Okay. So back in 2020, you know, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued a responsa to Adubia um, about the, um, about the uh, 
validity of marriages that are, or excuse me, the validity of baptisms that are offered in the first person plural. So the CDF said, if you are the kind of cleric who says, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because you want to express the inclusivity of the community and the conferral of baptism, you shouldn't do that uh, because you who are standing in persona Christi um, uh, are indeed the baptizer and baptism is a personal and human act. And um, you also shouldn't do it because we had judged that doing so is invalid. They didn't make it invalid. The CDF didn't say... From is, now on. Yeah, from now on, this is invalid, which the CDF can't say, only the Pope can say. But the CDF... Well, but they did, in fact, in this clarification that the CDF issued, they issued in forma specifica with the authorization. Yeah, but I don't which know... Which means the, it is a papal act. Yeah, but this is a an aside, but... I don't think the Pope could legislate that way. Yeah, of course well, he can. Uh, the Pope SSP, absolutely yeah, can. The Pope absolutely can legislate on matters of validity for the sacrament. No, yes, no, no, that's no. what canonical form is in marriage. No, I'm not saying that. Yes, of course, the Pope can establish invalidating conditions for the celebration of the sacraments. Can the Pope legislate? Through the responsa to a dubia of a oh, congregation. Oh, no, no, no. that's my point. Responsa right? no, to dubia emanating from Roman congregations have exactly zero legislative right. weight. They right, are but they opinion do, pieces. But they, well, I, I would say that when they're approved in forma specifica, they're, they're, they're binding theological um, clarity from the church, which require not the Congregation for Divine Worship here, the CDF's thing. Oh, the CDF's thing. A responsa. Right. Um, is a binding theological clarification, which we as Catholics are obliged to hold. It is, it is a, a tenenda, tenenda teaching. teaching of the church. Which because if you don't adhere to tenenda teaching, you are at risk of committing one of the big three. You are at risk of committing one of the big three. Namely, you are at risk if you don't commit, if you don't hold to tenenda teaching, you're at risk of committing heresy. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so, but, and, so the, but the general binding weight of a responsa to a dubia from a Roman congregation is normally it is an opinion piece. Yeah, yeah. But in, in this when case... It's, when it's approved in forma specifica... By the Roman pontiff, yeah. By the Roman pontiff, it is saying it comes with the full magisterial weight of papal teaching and you are going to hold, hold this it. tight. To ne- what does tenende mean? To hold. To hold. And so there are certain teachings in the church which Catholics are obliged to believe, credende teachings, and then there are certain teachings of the church which Catholics are obliged to hold, um, which is and to say... for those of you who are following along at home... A credenda teaching that you are obliged to believe with divine and Catholic faith is one level, but then the immediate below that is tenenda, and these are always derived from a credenda teaching. Right, exactly. That there is always an an unbreakable and inherent link that one derives directly and immutably from the other, and that is why they are in the same bracket for if you don't go with this, you are the H word, which we don't use because it's so often abused. Yeah. Bingo. Okay, so um, the... In 2020, August 2020, the CDF said that – the CDF was not making a rule, an invalidating condition for baptism that said that um, clerics who baptize you saying we do so invalidly. Instead, they were saying essential to the nature of the sacrament itself is the personal conferral of baptism. And therefore, a person who says we because they are sort of suggesting that amorphous collective conferral of the sacrament – confers the sacrament invalidly. And previously we had only thought that um, using a non-Trinitarian formula or using a Trinitarian formula but having, but holding definitively some non-Trinitarian theology, uh, you know, of the some non-Trinitarian theology could invalidate or you doing the form wrong. So, you know, not um, immersing or pouring or sprinkling or not using water for that matter mm-hmm. would be the things that could invalidate. And now here comes the CDF to say, there's another thing that would invalidate and it's this. Uh, and so the implication of that was that not just going forward, if you do this, the baptism that you confer is invalid, but for all at all time and, in, you know, at, at all moments in the past, if you had done this, 
the baptism was invalid. And so you probably The CDF remember. was not saying you may not. The CDF was not saying you cannot. The CDF was not saying you must not. The CDF was saying it is impossible to. It is to. impossible to confer baptism using this formula. Um, it's not an exercise of authority. Right. It's, it's an, an observation it's an, it's, of theological facts. Right, exactly. And it's a, an, a binding, uh, authentic observation of theological facts. Yes. So, uh, as a consequence of that, you know, there was a lot of sort of media coverage about this because it was the kind of thing that catches people's attention. And there was, thank you. And there, there's the kind of thing that catches people's attention. And there were, there was a priest named Matthew Hood. Father, well, there was a guy named Matthew Hood in Detroit who I had the pleasure of interviewing who thought he was a priest who had been ordained, but it turned out that the poor ordination Matthew, was invalid because he lacked... Matthew had never been baptized because yeah. the guy who baptized, who attempted baptism of him used this we formula. So Matthew had to be baptized, confirmed, ordained a deacon and ordained a priest in the course of, I don't know, like a week or something like that. And I really enjoyed interviewing him. A heck of a guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, a few other cases like that came up. But, you know, this thing has ha- had at that time and has continued to incite among ca- some Catholics a certain kind of anxiety about their own baptism. When this happened in 2020, I heard, a lot of people asked me, am I really baptized? How do I know? Can I, can I presume that I'm really baptized? And I had hoped that that would sort of... Um, um, abate, and I suppose it did for a little while, but it's been in the news again because a priest in Phoenix resigned from the from the parish that he was pastor of because it turns out that he had been using this we baptized formula for many many years and had uh, performed perhaps thousands of baptisms which were invalid, um, attempted baptism thousands of times, simulated baptism thousands of times, invalidly, and uh, and so you know the diocese of Phoenix apologized and said if you think you were baptized by this guy, call us up and we'll fix it. So it's back in the news again, and I've seen many, many people who are concerned and anxious about this. And I thought it was kind of just an internet thing, you know, like I thought it was just people on social media are the type who would. But um, I don't think so. You don't think that's the case. It wasn't the case in 2020. A lot of people called me who I didn't even know, you know, would have read about this. And you think still it's kind of a thing that has existed among a lot of Catholics. I'm concerned about this. I think so. And I think when situations like the situation of this priest that you mentioned um, bubble up, it it ripples through the life of the church in a way that is not some sort of Twitter fad. It is It ripples through the actual life of the church right. and the pews because people understand baptism is important. People understand baptism is essential. People understand that baptism is made up of this washing with water and the invocation of this very simple anyone can do it, grandma and the bathtub can do it when necessary right. formula. And to suddenly say, actually, you know, the, it, baptism has the has the deserved reputation, I think, uh, an impression amongst Catholics that it's so essential and it's also so simple. It is. It is. But now to find out, it's like, no, actually, you can you can screw this up incredibly badly, incredibly easily, and this can have huge effects. I mean, because the, the, the one thing the church says is that baptism is the gateway to salvation. Right. And so if you're saying, well, it turns out that gate wasn't actually open for all that many people or for a lot of people who thought it for was. For a lot of people who thought it was. It that wasn't. is a five-alarm fire. It doesn't mean, of course... Um, it doesn't it, mean that God doesn't... It doesn't mean doesn't... that God doesn't work outside of the economy of salvation, uh, of the, the sacramental economy. Yes. That God does not confer grace to people who whose parents attempted to have them baptized and who have expected that they were baptized in these kinds of things. But sacramental grace is a real thing. God can work outside of it, but sacramental grace, which imparts upon us the characters of faith, hope, and love, which can empower us to love as God loves and incorporates us in a particular way into the life of the church. That's a real thing. Yes. Even if we don't, even if we don't have the sensible or effective experience of saying, Oh, I can, I I can perceive that I'm baptized or something. Yes. I mean, for me, what is striking about this is not how many, 
members of the Catholic faithful in this country are disturbed by this story, but how relaxed <laughs> many of the pastors of the church seem to be about this. And I tell you for why. Um, it's not just everything we've just said about baptism is so unbelievably important that if there are indeed hundreds or thousands of people in this country who thought they were baptized or still think they are baptized but have not been validly baptized, that is a problem. It's a big deal. That is, I would say, fits anyone's definition of a spiritual emergency. So there's that. On top of that, this is a, this reveals a serious catechetical crisis at the heart of the church. For And it goes right the way to the top. It's, it's easy for people to have in their heads, oh, well, only some felt banner 70s hippie priest would dare say we baptize you and it's all their fault and da-da. That is not true. In 2003, the Congregation for Divine Worship issued a response to a dubia from an American bishop who said, I've got a priest who's been saying we baptize you. Right. Is that a problem? And they and said, it is, but... They said, it is definitely illicit. This is very bad. It's bad form. It looks terrible. It sends the wrong message. He absolutely shouldn't do this. You should stop him immediately. But don't be ridiculous. Of course, it's not invalidating. Right, right, right. And this yeah. is, and before anyone says, oh, well, the CDW, all they do is beat up on trads and it's evil Uncle <laughs> Arthur Roach. This was 2003. This is when Cardinal Arenze was I don't was think Arenze was the prefect then. Was, was, he was not? It? It, it, somebody was the prefect. It was, it was Arenze then Sarah, right? Yeah, but I don't know, remember when Arenze came. Let's... We'll, Effort we'll, that now. For benefit of... I'm sorry, what? We'll just... We'll make sorry, no, no, no. What did you just say? I said, look it up. No, you didn't. I said, we can effort that. You said we can effort yes. that. What part of speech is effort? In this case, it's the verb. Okay. That is an innovation which I reject. Effort is a noun. We can make an effort towards understanding that. But we cannot gift someone something we can give it to them. Um, we cannot effort something we can make an effort to understand it. I am going to reject this verbification of all nouns. Starting now, on this day, let it be known that effort is not a verb. You... You've made a bit of a silliness of yourself there, J.D., because you've drawn attention to something I was doing subtly. Oh, really? Yes. To, to say you're going to effort something is, in fact, a, a sort of... Bull, you're covering now. You're covering. No, I'm not. It's, it's, a, it's a stock phrase in another podcast to which I listen and to which there is some overlap amongst our listenerships, and it was a little Easter egg for our listeners, and you have just plastered a gigantic neon sign Sorry. over it. Cardinal Renze was the prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and Sacraments in 2003. Ed was right. Should I tell some Renze stories after this? After this. Okay. So what I was going to say is this response to me, which did not have inform a specific weight, was in fact just an opinion yep. piece mm -hmm. of exactly the same mm -hmm. um, <laughs> zero legislative effect as, yep. for example, the recent CDW response to be uh, related to traditionis custodis. The, the Congregation for Divine Worship's response with regard to traditionis custodis was not approved by the Pope in forma specifica, which means it is the opinion of the Congregation for Divine Worship and Sacraments, but it is not a law. It's not a, it law, not a law. It's not a definitive teaching. It is not anything of the kind. It's we said that in... By the way, we said that the day after it came out. we, no, said, we that, said that the day it came out. We said that the day it did came out. And yes. we explained it. Anyway, but I'm saying this was a 2003 response of the same way. It was an opinion piece, and it said, don't be silly, in effect. Of course, it's not invalidating. And this was in Cardinal Lorenze's day. And if you think Cardinal Lorenze is anyone's idea of a liberal, I suggest... Well, well, you I have think a nice light a liberal. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yes. Cardinal Lorenzo was not a liberal. So, so, if the church at the highest levels of her sacramental teaching authority was confused about this in 2003 and only resolved it two years ago from the CDF, 
We have a catechetical crisis. And it's understandable that anybody would not necessarily come. I don't think, I was saying this to you today, I accept that this is true because the Congregation for Divine Worship, excuse me, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has said it in a way which I'm obliged to hold as a Catholic, and that's fine with me. I accept it because of that. I do not arrive at it naturally. I do not intuit this. I understand why it's invalid, but I do not sort of arrive by way of reason at the notion that this is an invalidating thing. I cannot make... I, at the end of the day, I cannot make an argument for it because I do not see the strict sort of theological necessity of, of, of it. And I raise that to say there's been a lot – there have been a lot of people sort of saying like, well, does God really care about pronouns and these kinds of things? And they're fine questions, but truthfully, I, I can't answer those questions. And um, I'm not sure that you can answer those questions either. The Part of the catechetical emergency is, um, is, a, rec- is a way in which this has revealed that um, – the authority of the church is not the active authority of the church is not by itself teaching authority of the church is not by itself a convincing sort of um apparatus for all practicing catholics in the way that i might have thought that it was because i have heard many catholics saying like well why 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 and i feel a great deal of comfort and grace in that i don't know why and at the end of the day this is not the sort of thing that keeps me up at night i don't i'm just going to say it i don't care why this is an invalidating thing the church says that it is and at the end of the day that's good enough for me and the fact that um and the fact that that is that that i haven't even seen that argument really sort of enter into the public square suggests that not only do we have a sort of catechetical problem with regard to sacramental theology and why one word counts over another those kinds of things but there's also i i am not saying i'm not saying a lack of faith i'm saying um this reveals a way in which a principle about the magisterium, which we experience, and I think probably many of our listeners just experience as, well, okay, the congregation said it, all right, um, is not an operative principle for for many people who actually practice the faith. Yes, I think that is true. I am fascinated by this discernment of the CDF, I think is probably the best way. I am... I, you say you can't think your way to it, and I don't. I would never intuitively reason my way to this conclusion. I confess. Um, but I, 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 if someone had asked me before August twenty twenty, I probably would have. I, I would have gone said, down the no, two thousand three line. Yeah, it's incredibly yeah. bad. It's incredibly bad theology. It's an incredibly silly thing to do, and it's performative, and it suggests all the wrong things to the congregation. But the congregation says it's not invalidated, and I don't think it's invalidated. You know what I mean? Aside from now, I think it's invalidated because the church says it is. But before right. that, I wouldn't have reasonably said. And this seems to me to be the yeah. right. But so here's what I find fascinating about this, and and buckle up because this is gonna. This, there's gonna be a few. This is gonna. This is a bit of a. This is a bit of a spiral. Uh, a thought process. That, what that is is Ed's way of saying, please let me finish my thought without jumping in on something else. It's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, so what the CDF has said is using we baptize you instead of I baptize you is invalidating. Now, it can't simply be a question of language because there are many different languages in the world in which baptism is administered in the Latin Rite where there is, you know, confusion about um, singular and plural first person and you use it in different ways at different times for example in latin you often will use the first person plural if you're a person of a particular state for example a pope or a bishop will often quite correctly in the liturgy of the church say we say this we do that we baptize you or in the teaching documents of the church indeed so it's not it's not to me conceivable and i don't think the cdf would say 
that in the centuries past or decades past or years past or months past, that if a bishop was baptizing in Latin and said, we baptize you, that was an invalid baptism. Can we can we agree so far? Right, because words signify reality. Words signify realities and ideas, and words don't always signify the same realities and ideas. And in that case, a first-person plural nevertheless signified an individual, even though I, yeah, it is not analogous to, for example, in the Eucharist while confecting it, a priest says, and he took the watermelon filled with wine. Right, right, and, right. You know, it's it's not that. Yeah. So we can agree that what's invalidating here is not simply the use of a particular word. Right. It is what that conveys. It's what that word means in a particular context. So what we have here is a definitive invalidating ruling on a theological reality from the CDF that effectively is a universal judgment on the internal disposition of the person who uses it, which I find fascinating from a legal perspective. Because as you often tease me for and as we often argue about off of the podcast— I have a particular legal fascination about when can you correctly (laughs) infer an interior disposition from an exterior manifestation that isn't explicit. You believe in the possibility of thought crimes in a way that I do not. No, I believe in the possibility of demonstrating an interior disposition (laughs) through external actions, even if they are not a person signing their name to a particular declaration to that internal disposition. Now, what the CDF have done here is... Which is terrifically Orwellian, by the way. Well, it appears, not for the first time, <laughs> that the Holy Office is on my side. <laughs> so, I love that your as that your Cardinal Robert Sarah would say. I love say, that your takeaway from the thing is that you're right about who's a heretic and who is. Mettez ça en votre pipe fumile. I don't speak French. Ed. To put that in your pipe and smoke it. Oh, okay, fair enough. No, but it is in fact very, very interesting because what the CDF is effectively saying is not that. Um, you, If you are the sort of priest who would say we, you therefore must be the sort of priest who would think. They are saying if you are the sort of priest who has said we, you clearly have been formed in such a way that even if you don't think that's what you meant, that's what that's you meant. That's what you meant and that's what you expressed, yeah. I think it is true that in another time, you know, that if we were being used not to signify an actual plurality, but if we were being used to, to signify a, sing- a singularity or... I don't know the degree to which the pontifical we is expressing a singularity because I think it's also expressing office over person. I think we is used mm-hmm. pontifically and royally, I suppose, to, to express office over person. But the office is possessed by a person, and so there is a way in which that is not sort of the collective of the congregation or something like that. But yeah, the congregation here is saying this phrase expresses this, and this is problematic. Now, if you if the it could be demonstrated that the phrase nakedly overtly expressed something else in the case of the pontifical we or something like that. Well, you wouldn't be falling into that thing. Um, so it is not that God cares about pronouns. It is that God cares about internal disposition. Yes. An internal understanding. Yes. And even, and even your internal disposition and understanding, even if you don't think that's your right, internal disposition, exactly. and even and if it, that's what I find. But truthfully, why would you say it if you didn't hold that? Um, I can think of all sorts of it. Because I, I, I bet you there are a lot of priests. Uh, not a lot of priests. Please, God, there aren't a lot of priests. But I bet you there are a few priests somewhere who have said this because that's how they've that's seen how it. That's how they do it. Yeah. In, the, in this parish. We and get the to same the way that you see and... it. You know, there's a kind of priest, and this is not a judgment. This is an observation. Yeah, yeah. There's a kind of priest who always says sisters and brothers in a very self-conscious way. Yeah, so yeah. They're saying brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And 
It's not that I think they're necessarily trying to make a point about gender equality. It's just that they've understood that in this parish, that's what everybody and says. Maybe, maybe it's just that this is not the hill to die on. He, exactly. He himself. That's what I was going to say. Maybe he here. feels unnatural and stilted saying sisters and brothers instead of brothers and sisters. Or we but, baptize. But he but gets he understands there and the deacon says, and the DRE says, he, Father, we say sisters and brothers. Or we say we here. We baptize here. That is our custom. And then we sing this song and... There are so many things that he needs to do in this parish that he thinks to himself before the congregation came out with this thing. This is not the fight I'm going to have. Yep. And truthfully, before the congregation came out with the thing, I'd agree if with he him. told me that, and he said, look, this is I, I need your advice because this is not the fight I think I need to have, I might have said, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. yeah. And I bet you there are a handful of priests out there who have said, I don't like this. I don't think this expresses a good theology, but... You know, I'm not going to make this kid's baptism all about a fight between me and its parents right, over exactly. whether or not I'm sound, making I it just sound. And I just got here and I have to make a lot of, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff I have to do. And it's going to be, it's, it's going to be hell between me and this DRE for a while. And I'm just not going to piss her off on this one. I don't like it, but you know. And yet. And I would have C- said to him, I get it. Yeah. And yet the CDF's ruling is saying invalid because of. Again, citing the royal we, yeah. not because of the word he used, right. but because of the interior disposition it must necessarily have signified. Yeah. And you can unpick it even further if you want to. And I mean, again, this is getting into a bit of a spiral of logic here, but I find it fascinating as a thought process. Just call phenomenal. If you find yourself in a spiral of logic, just say you're a phenomenologist. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. That is my trick. Okay. Um, but say, for example, you're taking the, at this point, hypothetical example of Father Bill, who arrives in a parish doesn't like the fact that everyone seems to say we baptize you, but the other two priests assigned to the parish do. They always have, and he doesn't want to get in a fight with his pastor or, you know, start a fight over this kid's baptism and it's his first week or whatever. He says, we, it's possible that because, and I think I'm understanding the CDS rationale correctly, but I'm only trying to grope my way towards what they mean. If we're talking about internal disposition, now the the conformity between internal disposition and the use of words, particularly the necessary matter and form for a sacrament, is about expressing outwardly your inward adherence to what the church means right. and what the church intends. And it's possible you could argue that by saying, in the case of hypothetical Father Bill, who's just arrived in the parish and doesn't like it, he's saying, well, okay, in this case, I'm not going to conform to the church. I'm going to conform to this group who are doing something other than what the church says I should do. Now, again, this is this is my best effort to understand the implications of the CDF's ruling at a legal, logical level. But that's as near as I can come to it. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it is obviously... As near as we can come to it, and I think you're right, one way to think about the degree to which this is important to the congregation, to which the congregation seems to be discerning this in a, in a real act of magisterium, which unpacks the deposit of faith, is that by disposition, the church is incredibly tolerant with regard to the conferral of baptism, which is to say that we hold that... The church held Mormon baptisms to be valid for a long time by presumption. She was wrong. She presumed she that they were wrong. valid, and she decided and it was presumed. Presumed. But that but was... We, it took a long time to get them to yeah. consider that, because they're like, we don't want to open that box. Right. The church is entirely comfortable with the notion that an atheist who... Um, rejects entirely um, the very notion of God could confer baptism by intending to do what the church intends, even without sort of the effective disposition of faith. The church believe, you know, accepts the validity of baptism of, presumes the validity of baptism of various Protestant uh, ecclesial communities until such time as she um, makes such a discernment that they, 
don't have an authentically Trinitarian intention or, you know, that they are not using a formula. But we always, 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 always presume the validity of a baptism. You know, people always say, I, I always hear people say who don't know about this stuff, oh, should we just, if this person was baptized as an evangelical, should they just be conditionally baptized? You can't conditionally baptize someone unless you have positive and probable doubt. You have to have some actual reason to think the baptism didn't take place that that is beyond sort of this was the place where it happened either the church either there has you don't to get have to do it for judgment. safety's sake you don't get to do it for safety's sake thank you that is what i want to get at. you don't get to conditionally baptize for safety's sake again because of the church's preferential option for the presumption so to speak the church so right profound Profe- is that right exactly that she and, and if you can't prove your baptism with a baptismal certificate you know, you can, the affidavit of a witness and, uh, and, and again, even if you can't prove your baptism at all, if you have the sense that you were baptized, um, the church, and you manifest that you were baptized in any number of contexts, the church will presume that you were baptized and that isn't sufficient. I, I, I know I was baptized, but I just don't know where. That's not sufficient for you to be conditionally baptized. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know you're baptized? Well, unless we have some reason to doubt it. Doubt it. The law says you can't conditionally baptize someone. So we take this presumption very, very seriously. So for the congregation to do this thing, which is not about Mormons or Protestants or atheists in the desert with a canteen or something like that, but about her own sacred ministers to say, when clerics, who are the type to do this more probably than evangelicals or something, you know, we can think of clerics who do this ordain priests of Jesus Christ or deacons, the icon of Christ, or bishops for that matter, who do this, that is invalid. For the CDF to go so far against the presumption... And me, contradict another Roman congregation. Right, basically yes, slap them right. down and say, so these a, guys didn't know what they like were talking the, there's about. There's the audacity of it from the perspective of kind of the church's theological and canonical dis, you know, disposition. And then there's sort of the political audacity of it. Um, for the congregation to do all of that says to me, this is serious they understood what they were getting into now but did they just... provide the catechetical resources that came along with that i don't think sufficiently i think I... people have suffered from scrupulosity and we, and there needs to be more catechesis about a lot of questions that people have well this is what i was going to say is accepting everything you've just said and i think it's entirely right that the cdf must have come to the conclusion that this is such a big deal and such a big problem that it is worth the gigantic earthquake of a mess it is going to cause pastoral problem that will have to be dealt with by pastors now maybe if you're a parish pastor you think the cdf doesn't care if i have to deal with a pastoral problem but i do think that that factors into the equation do we really want this to become a thing in every parish there, there are few institutions more averse to making a mess right than the cdf yeah and anyway so all that being true have you seen this profundity reflected in how we're talking about this i i am of mixed mind about that i think in some places yes in in some some places places, yes in some places yes in some places no i do wish that there were many more i just see people i hear people i get texts from people ask me questions about this all the time it was actually my intention we're probably out of time now it was actually my intention to talk through some of those canonical and catechetical and theological questions people have and maybe we've done it implicitly in the thing um but um but people ask me this Probably is in the top five things that people ask me about Catholicism these days. Yeah. Yeah. So there needs to be much more on this. At some point, maybe we'll talk through, we'll take a kind of a, if you would like to send us your questions about this, maybe in a future show, we'll kind of run through a bunch of them. (laughs) It's looking at me like I, like I'm 
sentenced him to death. You don't want to do that? I'm I don't know that I want to do that. I just strongly urge you to set up a dedicated inbox for that, because otherwise we're going to get swamped. No, uh, maybe, but look, just in the ordinary ways, manifest your questions and we're going to answer some of them. Okay. Okay, fine. Great. <sighs> well, you ready for the Super Bowl? Honestly, Who do you pick? Who do you pick for the Super Bowl, Ed? Do I have to pick someone? Uh, I'd like you to pick someone, yeah, because I'm asking. I will pick the 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 Ohio Tigers. <laughs> Ed has been all day acting like an English person about the Super Bowl, and it is- it's a completely ridiculous event, JD. The vast majority of Americans who watch it are only watching it for the novelty commercials. Nobody cares about this thing. Yeah, you understand that football is like the most popular sport in America. It's not even. I mean, I. It's so boring. It's the whole thing is just endless commercial breaks and timeouts. I, I actually, and t- I agree with you. There is no sh- playtime. Like how much actual, like in a in a, the like, same amount, the same amount of playtime. Please don't ever say playtime again. Please, no, please. please. How, just promise me that. It, at your average NFL game broadcast lasts what four hours? I think less than that, but more than three. I think more you know, than three hours. How much of that is actual ball in play movement? Well, the, the Super Bowl half hour. The Super Bowl is is a uh, how much time is on a clock in the football. Game. The Super Bowl. Can I finish my sentence? Just tell me how much time is actually on the clock. I think game. the quarters are fifteen minutes. So an hour. Mm-hmm. So it's a three and a half hour broadcast for an hour's worth of play. Okay. I, what? Where? Where are you going here? Just that it's incredibly boring. So you're not complaining about the football. You're complaining. Well, I also think it's a dumb sport. So I don't understand. You don't like the Super Bowl or you don't like football? Both. Oh, that's stupid. And you, there's always a halftime show where there's some clapped out, superannuated former pop star who tries to do something moderately provocative. Agree, and we all actually, pretend to be offended yeah. and fan, and you know fascinated by the whole thing. And I agree that the Super Bowl is. I'm it, sure is, they're going to like you know exhume Madonna's body for this year or something. I don't know what, but it's going to be tedious, and I'm going to have to hear speaking about of which, it. Did you see? Uh, do you, are you guys at all watching the Boba Fett show? Yeah, we tried that. Did you see how cool Mark Ham- the Mark Hamill kind of reanimation looked or whatever? CGI Mark? CGI is, Mark Hamill? Is CGI Mark Hamill in the CGI Book of Mark Fett? Hamill. Yeah, sorry. Spoiler. Spoiler! Uh, CGI Mark Hamill is in the Boba Fett and it's really quite cool. Well, I'll look out for that. I, I We've only gotten to like episode four and I... Okay, so this is what herself said to me the last time. I, this is why we haven't gone back to it. It's basically neither one of us could get into it. And she just said, who is this for? Because it seems to be... For children, like a five-year-old could watch this. There's no actual violence. Like, yeah, it's a Western. It's a Western. No, but nobody gets shot. I don't know. I actually, I'm not, I, I must confess, the only part of it that I've seen is the Mark Hamill thing. My wife likes the Boba Fett. She's not a okay. child, by the way. She's just a sophisticated taste. And Wait, is she, hang on, I want a clarification. Are you talking about the book of Boba Fett or are you talking about the Mandalorian? Because those are two different shows. Yes. Which one Since are you talking about? Since I said about? the Boba Fett thing, I'm just... which one do you think that I'm talking about? Well, I don't know, because I watched The Mandalorian and there was a CGR Mark Hamill in that. Okay, but since I said, did you watch the Boba Fett thing, which one of those two things? The thing called Boba Fett or the thing called Mandalorian? Which one of those two things do you think I meant by the Boba Fett thing? I had a cl- question and that's why I asked it. Yeah, but I'd like you to reason through this one on your own. I know neither one of us can arrive at the CDF's theological necessity for We Baptize, but I bet you can get to this one. It's possible that... <laughs> yes, the Book of Boba Fett. I just feel stupid saying that because it's a dumb title. Oh, okay. We, that's fine. I, look, there are two shows about guys dressed in exactly the same outfit. It's yeah, not but ridiculous which one did I ask you about? Well, I don't... I haven't seen the whole of the second one, so I couldn't immediately tell that there was a CGI Mark Hamill. Did you Mark see Hamill. the Boba Fett thing? Wait, the Boba Fett thing or... Or the one with another one. <laughs> who Boba Fett's also in the other... I, just, we're getting off point. 
Um, my wife, is, who is that show for? Because like the whole, I don't know. I I think in the original it. Star Wars films, the real ones, not the not the ones that were made after the year two thousand and are garbage, all of them uniformly, no exceptions. Um, but in the original okay. ones, Boba Fett is the sort of man with no face. Who the only thing you actually know about him is apparently he likes to disintegrate people. Yeah, but people and in like this him. one, he like. He, like, takes his helmet off. It's like, well, I can't possibly shoot people when I'm in a fight with them in the street. I have to, like, punch them in the face. It's bizarre. Is it, does, does it precede the events of Star Wars or does it... No, it's antecedent. It's antecedent to the events of Star Wars. So is there some personal curtain version that he has had? No, he still carries the guns. He just doesn't use them. I mean, I find the whole thing bizarre. I don't understand who it's for. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway... It's also incredibly badly thing. acted, but... I, the Mark Hamill thing was cool. A uh, characteristic of... St- I... A characteristic of Star Wars is Star Wars is 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 the bad acting. I think it's actually I think it's actually a a, a a design choice, like a directorial choice, that the acting is what it is. Well, that's what made the Mandalorian, I thought, an interesting show. Wait, do you mean the Mandalorian or do you mean the Book of Boba Fett? No, I mean the Mandalorian. Wait, the one with the Boba Fett in it or the one called the Mandalorian? Well, Boba Fett's in both of them, so that's not a helpful <laughs> question. Um, but no, the one the thing I liked about the Mandalorian is Pedro Pascal. I think is the actor who played the Mandalorian. I don't know. I, I tell you, you can effort that now, but then you're going to stop and make a whole big thing about how I said effort. So I won't. Yeah, do that. because I reject that. That's stupid. That's fine, but that's not the point. It's not why I said it. Anyway, um, the interesting thing about the Mandalorian for me was the best acting was the guy who never showed his face. He and showed. His, actually, I thought he showed his face, and that's why he couldn't go back to Hobbitown or whatever. Whatever. Maybe he did at the end. But my point is, it was actually still actually very compellingly well acted, even though he was wearing this faceless helmet for the whole thing. And the supporting cast, with the exception of Carl Weathers, most of the time was you know very sort Carl of. Carl Weathers was in it. Yeah, Apollo Creed, man. I know who Carl Weathers is. Yeah, he's in it. Yeah, he was really good. I mean, oh. he's good in everything. Huh. But you know, I yeah, the guy from Arrested Development. Yes. So anyway, you were saying. Uh, that show made more sense to me. At least I understood the audience it was being pitched at. I don't get who the Book of Boba Fett is for because it's like action People violence like level Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. Like, mm-hmm. I don't get it. Like, you know the not old G.I. Joe cartoons for, when we were growing up? Not everything that's for an adult has to be violent. No, I would agree, but it's the, it's the, it's like, it's kind of, it's like we're showing you violence, but there's no actual violence happening. It's kind of like. Maybe it's for, maybe it's for. No, but do you remember how in. When we I wasn't were, allowed to watch Shadow. Okay. But you are familiar with the 80s cartoon G.I. I was Joe. aware of the fact that there was G.I. Joe because other kids were allowed to watch it and I wasn't. Okay. So they played on the playground and I'd be like, I'll be... Uh, Something. Joe. Fine. But the, 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 the amusing thing about the G.I. Joe cartoon in the 1980s was they all had guns that they would fire at each other. That was, you know, laser fire coming out of M16s perversely. But anyway, they would have laser fire and they would fire at each other. But no one would ever get hit. And then they would just sort of charge each other and then the thing would disintegrate into a fist fight. Uh-huh. And it's... Ridiculous, and it's cartoonish because you can't show a cartoon for kids with people getting shot. So you just show them missing each other bizarrely and then getting into a punch-up. And the Book of Boba Fett's kind of the same thing. Well, maybe it's for parents to watch with their 12-year-old boy that likes Star Wars. Did you see, uh, by the way... If that's the level of violence he's comfortable with, it means he's not able to watch any of the actual Star Wars movies. Well, I don't know. Uh, I I guess you're right. Uh, Did you see that... Uh, our Navy uh, drove an F-35 off an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. Yeah, that's worrying. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's not good. Yeah. Anyway, the Super Bowl, um, it's stupid that you think the Super Bowl is stupid. The Super Bowl is the, le- is the worst football game of any football season except for the Pro Bowl because of all the breakups in the action and all those things. Like, I agree with you that the Super Bowl is um, the worst football watching of the season of football. But I have I watched college games and enjoyed them. 
But I think that your sort of English, uh, I don't like watching American football, is silly. Well, the, the, as a general rule, the play is too broken up. The rules are too bizarre. You basically aren't all... First of all... You I, were telling me today... The thing that bothered me that you were telling me today is that you don't think anyone watches American football when by every available metric it's the most popular sport in America. I think that people like <laughs> the experience of watching football rather mean? than actually watching... The, is, like, they is, like is tailgating. That, what does that mean? No, they, pe- the, people who watch football on television aren't thinking, boy, I really love tailgating. Well, if they're watching the car football. insurance commercials have taught me anything, it's the sort of staple of the American male that they have sort of football watch parties where they... See, when you say, I think people like the experience of watching something rather than watching something, that strikes me as a distinction without a difference. The experience is the watching. No, the experience is the being together and talking and eating nachos and wearing, I guess, face paint apparently is a thing. See, uh, every, is everything you know about football from like a chunky Campbell's Chunky Soup commercial? Yeah. Okay, well then you... Maybe a Fios commercial. I don't know. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of TV, I'll be honest with you. I know you don't watch a lot of TV. Now that I don't even have a... Channel I don't either. These are, I have to go by the adverts that they stick into my yeah, Amazon into a Prime YouTube thing. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Me too. And like, what I'm honestly excited about is the next season of the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel coming out. Um, so I'm not the, probably the guy. Well, that the other thing is, like, every time I've tried to watch a football game, it's you know you see something that looks to me like interesting and engaging play where two guys are fighting over trying to catch the ball, and then they start throwing flags at them and saying, "Oh, you touched each other. You can't do that." Well, they it's have like, rules that are optimized to. Well, Increase the amount of offense. That's I don't understand. All these players seem to suffer debilitating brain injuries, yet they're wearing full suits of Kevlar, and it's illegal for them to touch each other. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. It is true, actually, that um, because of the the uh, I'm sure you've seen this, but because of the helmets that football players wear, they're less likely to learn how to tackle correctly, and therefore, and less likely to tackle correctly, and therefore, they're more likely to be injured than people who play other kind of. Oval As someone who played rugby all through school, like I rugby. think if you want to improve American football, both from a gameplay perspective and a health and safety perspective, just take away these helmets and shoulder pads. A lot of people wearing. have been saying that. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people. Make them go back to the leather, like you know, little fisherman's oh, okay. caps. Um, Which, incidentally, you know why they started? They wear I'm those. Leave in, that one alone. Do you um, know why they wear those in rugby? Why do they wear the leather fisherman's cap? Well, they Please, make them out I of. Thank you to go to rugby. Field and say, uh, "Where's my fisherman's cap, fellows? Please." Do no, it. they just call them rugby caps. Right. But the reason they actually wear them in rugby is not to protect their head; it's protect their ears. Oh yeah, because you don't want to get cauliflower. Exactly. Cauliflower ears are gross. I think they're really super manly. <laughs> okay. That's because you're here. You know, your sporting heroes are rugby players. We're gonna end the, we're gonna end the show now. On that note, Ed, um, the trial of Bishop Oscar Zanqueta starts on February the eighteenth in Argentina. In Argentina, Bishop Zanqueta is accused of. Sexually abusing seminarians. Also some and, financial... And also some right. financial things. But the trial, I think, pertains to the sexual abuse. It does, yeah. And we will be watching that very carefully. The next hearing for the Vatican Finance trial is February... 18th. 18th. Must we, see TV. We will be watching that very carefully. Season four of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel comes out on February 18th. I don't know if you'll be watching that very carefully. People have recommended that to me. I haven't yet seen it, but I'm prepared to believe it's good. Uh, yeah, there, you see, I'm being positive about when something. Is the next, when is the next hearing? Do you happen to know off the top of your head when the next hearing of the McCarrick? March, I think. I, that I sounds think the next right. Is in March, yeah. Okay. yeah. We'll obviously be watching that very carefully. And so that's the trial update from us. And uh, now you've heard about the Super Bowl, the trial, National Marriage Week, and baptism in the first person singular. And anything else? No, I think we've had a wonderful time. Well, I would just like to say... Uh, in concluding this podcast that I am and hope that I am always representing myself as a person of hope, always pursuing and hopefully <laughs> excelling in the virtue of hope. Um, and may all of us increase in 
hope, faith, and charity, the um, the gifts given to us at our baptism and central to the life of grace. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and NNJD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flint, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner right here, live in our Littleton, Colorado studios, Ed, the football curmudgeon content. Go Bengals? <laughs> Thank you.